May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Physiognomies do not lie. Physiognomies, of course, are the features of our face. Some people can be very convincing with their words, but their face will usually give them away because the face doesn't lie. And you know this. You can tell the difference between a real smile and a fake smile, right? I mean, you know when your daughter received a present from Aunt Mabel on Christmas and she opened it up and she says, Oh, Aunt Mabel, a chartreuse turtleneck. Um, What I've always wanted, you know, and gives that big smile and you know... Now, Aunt Mabel doesn't catch it because she's looking for something else, right? She wants to believe that her niece really does like it. She misses it, but not you. You caught it. You saw that fake smile. You knew the truth. Parent walks in, finds a cookie jar laying on the counter with the lid off, cookies falling on the counter, goes into the family room and finds that little boy with crumbs on his cheek and chocolate smeared across his shirt and says to him, Did you get in the cookie jar? And you know what he says, you know? Who, me? Who, me? And right away, it's not the crumbs, it's not the chocolate. The face. The face gives it away. Because physiognomies don't lie. Shame, guilt, joy, delight, sadness, happiness, fear, they're all evident, they're all written across our faces, aren't they? In fact, we have idiomatic phrases for just these such things. It's written all over your face. You know it, right? What uh, Wilbur said to Mr. Ed, you got to be over 40 to get this one. Why the long face? Right? Um, it's horrible. Wasn't that horrible? Uh, but you know, what, what? a couple of you got that one. Um, look at him make a face, they might say, right? Or, why do you look like you just lost your best friend? When you're playing poker, keep a straight face. All these because... The face doesn't lie. It gives away the truth. Words aren't the only indicator. Faces speak as loud as words. I had occasion to see this in a new way just recently. And while I was on vacation, we went to Cincinnati and went to Kings Island. Now, when I grew up in, um, in southwest Ohio, going to Kings Island was the best thing ever. I mean, it never got better than this. And so when you went down there, I, I still couldn't resist... Um, Had to ride all the roller coasters. I don't remember as a child that they hurt my body as much as they hurt this time. But I don't know. Something must have been off in the technicalities or something on that. But um, on this particular day, we had the occasion to do... uh, I I had occasion to watch something I had never seen before. There's a a thing there called the slingshot. I don't know. Have you heard about this? There's two towers that go up about 130 feet in the air. And in between these two towers that are separated by, I don't know, maybe a hundred feet apart, there's this little metal cage, a little ball-like cage that has two seats in it, just two seats in it. And in this little cage, there's a a bungee cord that's attached to each side and it goes out to the two towers. So it looks like a giant slingshot. And Abby and Dietrich, and then later Benjamin and Colette Larrabee, got into this little cage Now, here's the beautiful thing. In this little cage is a video camera mounted right above the two riders. The cage is pulled down to the ground. And then you know what's going to happen, don't you? It lets go. 
And these two little prisoners in this cage fly 250 feet in the air at over 100 miles an hour. In seconds, you reach 25 stories. And there's a camera right there to capture the whole thing. Oh, it's lovely. Oh, it's so great. These little rough, tumbly wrestlers that I have. Oh, my. It wasn't the scream that gave them away, you know? It was the look all over their face. The face doesn't lie. They were not frightened. They were terrified as they shot up into the air. I thought it's funny how people like to frighten themselves, don't you? I mean, we all take a perfectly good Saturday afternoon or sunny day, you know, and what shall we do today? Oh, I don't know. Let's scare ourselves half to death. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's go do that. So we ride roller coasters and get in hot air balloons, and some people jump off a bridge with a bungee cord or go on safari. Hey, let's see how close we can get to a man-eating lion or a leopard or a cheetah, you know. Let's just see how close we can get. Some people get on motorcycles or go to watch horror movies or, I don't know, ask a girl out to the sock hop. You know, all these terrifying things that we'll do just to see ourselves be frightened. Have you ever seen a child that got to see a jack-in-the-box for the very first time? You know, when you, you know, here we go around the mulberry bush, whatever, and, and then all of a sudden it pops out. Have you ever seen that for the, a child that gets to see that for the first time when they're about 18 months old? It is wonderful. Um, because they scream, they're terrified, right? They e- even cry a little bit, usually. It was so much pleasure. That's why we kept having children, because I just couldn't get enough of it, you know? <laughs> I'm just scared of the next one. We spend a lifetime cultivating a love of fear. But it's always just a, a kind of controlled fear, isn't it? It's not real fear. We always know that it's a limited fear. It's a safe fear. You know, you've heard that people have died on roller coasters. But it doesn't happen very often. In fact, it's so far in view between that we still strap ourselves into these crazy contraptions and go flying into the air. You've all heard of a couple that died in a hot air balloon on their honeymoon. There are real things such as serial killers in the world. But the likelihood of of dying in the slingshot or falling out of a hot air balloon or being chased by a guy with a chainsaw, I mean, they're so remote that we just kind of enjoy that sort of fear. But true fear, real fear, is when there is unpredictability. When you really don't know what's going to happen and you really are frightened, that's true fear. The writer to the epistle called the Hebrews in the New Testament, um, he writes this letter called the epistle to the Hebrews, and it's not like most epistles in the Bible. In fact, I think this was an ancient sermon, probably like a, like a, um, like a manuscripted sermon that was published. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to encourage Jewish Christians, Christians living in the first century who live in Israel, to not be afraid. To remember that people of faith have often faced marginalization, they've often faced persecution, but hey, you know, come on, buck up. People have suffered much worse than what you're suffering. There's not as much to fear as you might think. In fact, here's what he writes at the end of chapter 11. He says, some people of faith were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might 
again rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. This isn't like the, the magician, you know, where you, <laughs> oh, now look who's back together again. No, this is sawn in two and not put back together again. Um, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Now, there are people of faith who have really suffered, the writer to the Hebrew says. You're not there yet. That's his message. In fact, here's what he says. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. You know, your life's tough. I get it. But it's not that tough. Get over it. Sure, it's tough being a follower of Jesus in a world where people don't really want to believe in Jesus. I know it's tough to believe in the resurrection when people say there's no such thing as a resurrection. I know it's not easy to be a follower of Jesus the Messiah when people can't see the Messiah. They don't see a crown on somebody's head. And Stop being afraid of people. Don't be afraid of them. Don't cower in your faith. Be bold in it. Be courageous. But I think the Hebrew writer would say, there is someone of whom you should be afraid. There is a proper fear. And that is the fear of the Lord. This is the sort of fear that you ought to cultivate. A proper fear of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? It's all over the Bible, isn't it? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord all throughout the Old Testament. What does it mean to cultivate a proper fear of the Lord? Well, it's not this. It's not terror. Fear of the Lord is not living in dread of an unpredictable deity. You know, it's not living our lives like... Oh no, he might smite me. He might smite thee. <laughs> no, it's not that. That is not the fear of the Lord. Anybody ever worried about being smited? I have. Um, this is not a proper fear. That's not the way to look at it. Take your bulletins, will you? And look at, at, at the lesson with me in, in Hebrews chapter 12. The very first verse, verse 18. He writes it this way. You have not come... To what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness, a gloom, and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He goes on to talk about Moses and people saying, Moses, go talk to God for us. You knew right away, I, I know, familiar with your Bibles enough to know that this is a reference to Exodus, right? This is, this is the people of Israel coming to Mount Sinai where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Here's what, here's what is written, you don't, don't turn there, but in the Old Testament, in, in Exodus chapter 20, right after the Lord had given the Ten Commandments, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid, were afraid and trembled. And they stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You speak for us, and we'll listen. But do not let us speak to God, lest we die. The Hebrew writer says, this is not the way you come to God. You do not come to God fearful and trembling, afraid that you're going to die if you get close to Him. Don't be like Moses. You, know, you go do it. Holy Trinity. Cho, guess what? We've got something for you to do, you know. Um, go talk. We'll, we'll, we'll wait right here. Um, you go find out. and come. No. That's not the way that we are to approach God, which is the Hebrew author's point. 
Instead, we're to approach God differently. But listen, not on the other hand, not with such a familiarity, such a casualness that we just go waltzing up to God as if God were not a consuming fire. See, that's the other hand, right? God deserves absolute reverence. At the end of the lesson, flip the page in your bulletin, to the end of the lesson, verse 28. We're not trembling, afraid, terrorized, but verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God, look at this, acceptable worship. If you had a pencil, you would underline that, wouldn't you? Acceptable worship. Somebody someday is going to bring a pencil. They're going to say, I have one. Uh, With reverence and awe. You're to come to God with acceptable worship, with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. There's a lot here, and I don't have time to unpack it, having spent so much time on the slingshot. But what I do want to say here is that acceptable worship, this is sort of a tricky thing in the original Greek, because as we read it, acceptable is an adjective modifying a noun, worship. But in the original, in the way that the Hebrew writer wrote it in the original Koine Greek, it's actually worship is a verb. And acceptable is an adverb. Let us acceptably worship would be a better way to render it. Let us properly worship. Now what does that mean? Does that mean in the Anglican style, the Book of Common Prayer? That's exactly what it means. That was a joke. I thought it was funny. Um, No, it doesn't exactly mean that. Although it can. And does. Does it mean with gloomy faces? Oh no, we got to go to church this morning. You know, it's Sunday after all. Aren't we terrified? No, not that at all. Does it mean with organ, brass, and timpani? No, it doesn't mean that at all either. It can mean with organ, brass, and timpani. It can mean with whatever you want it to be, but it has to be about the central part, not the peripherals. We get so hung up on the peripherals, don't we? We, I mean, not you, me. I get hung up on the peripherals. I, I do the things that surround it. That's not what the Hebrew writer is trying to get to. With reverence and all, it's about the interior of the person who's worshiping, right? It's about the way, the manner in which we come to worship. We have to come recognizing God for whom God is. That it is God is God and we're not. God is ultimate, absolute purity. We are sinful, selfish. We want our own way. We want to be God. We want to rival God. So when we come with reverence and awe, we realize, listen, we don't come because we deserve to come. We don't come into the presence of God because we deserve to, because we have a right to, because, you know, it's right here in the Constitution. Read the First Amendment, Lord. that's That's not the way in which we come. We come with reverence and awe. He has given us the keys of the house. But it's not our house. (laughs) My children, they don't get this, you know. Um, I hear them all the time. They'll say things like, um, Hey, Ole, come over to my house. Come over to my house. Let me tell you what. That kid who says that has never made a single mortgage payment. Not a single one. My house? Not your house. It's my house. You know, that's what I say. But of course it is his house. Because I give him the key. 
This is the way we approach God. It's His house. We come not because we're worthy, but because He wants us to come. Because He bids us to come. And here's what's more. The whole house metaphor is not about the church. Worship is not about what we do on Sunday. It's as much about what we do on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday as it is about what we do on Sunday. That we approach our whole life as a life of worship. We come to God every day living with the realization that we live in His house. That He holds our destiny, controls our future. So we come with reverence and awe. I have this video on my computer and you have to come watch it sometime. Yeah, just show up at the church and, and I'll, I'll pop it up for you of, um, of Abby and Dietrich and Benny and Colette on the slingshot. It, uh, Mary Ellen and I the other day were watching it over and over, just laughing every time, you know, just that takeoff. Um, and you see this really getting in giggling. You know, laughing. They strap them down. The giggles kind of stop. And all of a sudden, everybody goes white and looks like astronauts with white knuckles holding on to the thing. And in ultimate seriousness, for about a tenth of a second, as that thing shoots off into the air. At the end of it, giggling and laughing again. Having faced their own demise, they live to walk away and laugh about it. I think the Hebrew author wants us to remember That when we come into the presence of the living God, we come into the presence of a consuming fire. We have no right to anything, not even our own life. And yet He bids us come, and He shows us love and acceptance and forgiveness, redeems us, transforms us, and says that we belong here, that we belong in Him, that we're loved by Him and wanted. Desperately wanted. And that our life means something. And we should never forget that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.